Welcome back. Welcome back to the podcast. It's me, Amaka. I hope you all are doing well. And as always, sending a little extra love to those who might need it. As far as things go for me, I am doing well. And before I continue, I want to say apologies in advance if you hear our family dog barking in the background. She's in the house on the bottom floor, but when she barks, she barks rather loud. So the microphone might catch it. I'm going to do my absolute best to edit out any that I can. But in case you hear a couple of barks here and there, that's our dog. So yeah, how have I been? I've been good. I am recording this podcast on a Monday with the intention to edit and post this coming Wednesday, the 15th of February. And as far as this weekend went, it was pretty good. You know, with Valentine's Day being tomorrow, the 14th, my husband and I decided to, you know, we actually don't usually celebrate Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day has another significance for me because it's the birthday of a family member of mine. But I don't know. We've never really been like big Valentine people. I'll usually kind of like jokingly make a big stink like you didn't ask me to be your Valentine. (laughs) You know, because you can't just assume just because we're married doesn't mean that you can just assume I'm your Valentine. So we always kind of have a chuckle with that every year. But I don't know, this year, I was like, you know, I think I want to do something. So we decided to go to this restaurant that he became familiar with in the city. It's called Freeman's. Their food is very good. And I feel like it's kind of like an if you know, you know type of restaurant. I had never heard of it before he mentioned it and he was put onto it from a friend of his who had a birthday dinner there. So this was actually our second time going. We went earlier, maybe like two months ago now, we went before the holiday season and we wanted to go back and um, the food was amazing again. So I'm sure we, we will be back But yeah, we decided to do that. And I was like, I think I want to get some flowers. So I was like, I would love if you got me flowers for Valentine's Day. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah. So he got me flowers on Saturday before we went out for dinner. And I was so... (laughs) I'm laughing because I, I crack myself up sometimes because... I very much remember asking him for flowers, but when he actually presented me with the flowers, I felt like it was a surprise. And like, I was thinking about that interaction, everything leading up to that moment and about how I think sometimes we overrate spontaneity because I very, you know, I made it known to him that since we don't usually do any Valentine's Day type stuff, like, you know, I kind of want to do something this year. So he was like, okay, you know, and um, I was like, okay, you know, let's figure out where we're going to eat. We decided on Freeman's again. And um, I was like, I want flowers. And he was like, really? Okay. 
and he got me the flowers and I felt like how I felt was like as if he just got them on his own like it was like a surprise which is crazy and like I was thinking about it for a while and I was like you know what spontaneity is overrated a little bit you know I more than a little bit in my opinion I think you know sometimes I hear women saying that they would love a guy who can kind of anticipate their needs and read their mind but personally for me I'm not quite sure I really want someone who can read my mind (laughs) your mind is the only place in this whole world where you can have complete and total privacy and no one will know what's going on in your head um, so I don't know if I really want someone who can read my mind, but I think I appreciate more so a partner who listens, you know, and takes it to heart when I, you know, share a request, you know, that I really would like to have happen. So I really appreciated the fact that, you know, I was like, hey, babe, I would love some flowers. And he was like, really? And I was like, yeah. And he got them for me. And I was over the moon. I requested yellow roses. He said he couldn't find them, so he got red. And I didn't even care. (laughs) He had just presented the bouquet to me. And um, another funny thing, too, was like we were kind of getting a little down to the wire with our reservation time, and he hadn't come home yet. He went to the gym. So I was like, what's what's taking him? But I didn't really think too much of it. We got there in time. But then he waltzed in with this bouquet, and I was like, oh, I see why. And um, yeah, I I guarantee that I would have felt the exact same way I felt on Saturday if it was a surprise. And I guess I say that to say like, you know, having a partner, wishing for a partner who can read your mind, wishing for a partner who is always spontaneous. I mean, that's fun sometimes, but I think wish like, you know, wishing and, and pursuing a partner who is a listener and you know takes serious your desires or your requests and is intentional I think I would take that over spontaneity any day so I just wanted to share that so yeah we had a really good valentine's day week weekend date um and then we went back to the city on sunday found a Nice bar, ordered some wings and some beverages and watched the game. And that that was a good time too. It was packed. We got there a little earlier than kickoff time. So they were getting full, but we were able to get a nice little corner area um, on a bar. So we were able to sit and get our food and just relax. So it was an eventful weekend for me, but fun, fun. I am home today. I did not leave the house today. I was rather exhausted, though I had a good time. So I actually got my my groceries delivered today because I really didn't want to leave the house. I was like, I have a really busy week this week. So if I can just kind of be a homebody today, that would be great. So yeah, I had a really good weekend. And my sister is coming into town next weekend because The Read is having... The Read Podcast, which I'm a fan of, my sister is also a fan of, is having their 10-year podcast anniversary show in the city 
next weekend. So she's coming into town and we're going to have a sister's hotel city weekend, which I'm looking forward to. Um, We'll have brunch. We'll go to the show. We'll hang out. We'll catch up. So I'm really looking forward to that, too. So, yeah, and also kind of getting into the work frame of mind for the week, still kind of adjusting to balancing two jobs. But I really have no complaints. I have no complaints. I'm, I'm very thankful. and I'm very much in a space of gratitude right now. So, all right. I think that is good enough for a personal update. As you can see from the topic of, th- of this episode, we're going to close out the conversation around Untamed by Glennon Doyle. And I just want to touch on a couple of chapters that... I found to be some of the most impactful parts of the book for me and perhaps for other people, I would think. And then um, after kind of talking about that, I have a couple of questions that I would pose to Glennon if I were to kind of like, you know, see her and have the opportunity to talk with her or, you know, maybe even further than that, like, If, you know, one day, just kind of pretending that I had the opportunity to interview her, like, I have two questions that I've kind of thought of would be interesting to ask her. So the first chapter that I want to talk about is the one titled Racists. And this chapter is the chapter in the book where she talks about her journey to kind of taking off the rose colored glasses and stepping out of her world as a white woman and kind of looking wider and deeper into what American society is for people that don't look like her, people of color, people like me, a black woman. And I feel like it's the type of chapter that can bring up certain feelings for certain people, depending on where they are in that journey as a white person, maybe they don't think it's a problem as they read the book. Maybe they are kind of, you know what, you know what the the idea that just came to me as a healthcare professional, as a mental health professional, as someone who has kind of studied the field of public health to a degree, I think about the trans theoretical model for change and the different steps that come with that. It's often referenced when you are working with a client and trying to use the tools of motivational interviewing. So the steps are pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, action, and maintenance. Pre-contemplation is the point where you are completely ignorant. You don't think there's a problem with whatever is happening around you or whatever behavior you're engaging in. Contemplation is the point where your self-awareness is increased, your level of consciousness is elevated, and you are open to the fact that maybe there's something that you need to personally address, and kind of channel more energy into changing. And then preparation is self explanatory, you have passed the point of acknowledging that there's a problem, and you actually want to take active steps to make a change. So you make a plan. And then action, also self-explanatory, you are actively in the process of making the change. You are doing the steps, you know, things like that. 
And then um, maintenance is when you are pretty much just staying steady in that action phase and you are making sure not to get complacent or, you know, go back to how things were before. So I could imagine people being across that spectrum of change reading this chapter and someone like myself, a black woman reading this chapter written by a white woman, it gave me some insight on what a white woman who is maybe in the contemplation phase wants, would want to do or how they might want to seek insight. And I think for someone who kind of fits that description, this would be a great this would be great information to read because there were particular points in the chapter where I was like, yeah, yeah, I really think that this is, you know, important for people to know. There was one in particular, this was just a couple pages into the chapter. She was having a conversation with her daughters. And I think one of them asked her, mom, what would you do? What would you be doing if this was like in the 60s or the time where these civil rights leaders were on the ground doing the work and she was getting ready to say that she would be among them doing the work too but then her daughter interjected her other daughter interjected and said that we wouldn't be doing that because ultimately whatever we're doing now is what we would be doing then so this is a direct quote I'm appointed to a white woman holding a sign. Actually, let me start further, further up. I went to my office to find a particular book. I pulled it down from the shelf, came back to the couch and sat between them again. I opened the book and we read about Martin Luther King Jr., Rosa Parks, John Lewis, Fannie Lou Hamer, Diane Nash, and Daisy Bates. We looked at pictures of civil rights marches and we talked about why people march. Someone said that marching is praying with your feet, I told them. I'm appointed to a white woman holding a sign, marching in a sea of black and brown people. Her eyes popped and she said, Mama, look, would we be marching with them like her? I fixed my mouth to say, of course, of course we would have, baby. But before I could say it, Tish said, no, Ama, we wouldn't have been marching with them back then. I mean, we're not marching now. And then I wrote in the margins, what you're doing now is what you do back then. And I really thought her daughter was so smart to have such insight about that, um, more so than the mother, you know, and it really, I think, lit a light bulb for her, Glennon, because like, she's right. You it's, it's a comforting thought to think that you would be in the trenches with them doing the work at that time. But is that something you're doing now? And she goes on to expand on that thought um, later on in a chapter by saying, so if I want to know how I'd have felt about Dr. King back then, I can't ask myself how I feel about him now. Instead, I have to ask myself, how do I feel about Kaepernick now? If I want to know how I'd have felt about the Freedom Riders back then, I can't ask myself how I feel about them now. Instead, I have to ask myself, how do I feel about Black Lives Matter now? So I think that this was very interesting to read. And it made me think, too, about like, 
what would my role have been back then and ultimately what is my role now and that's definitely something I need to reflect on as a black woman what I would be doing versus Glennon who's a white woman who her participation would be very different in some ways so I wanted to highlight that piece of this chapter in addition to another part of the chapter a couple pages farther where she talks about the process of kind of deconstructing the an average white woman's perspective who is not privy to how the world works for other people who don't look like her and how if she is trying to make effort to make change she may find that if she is you know discussing or exchanging ideas with people of color or black women or black men or whoever and maybe has some moments where she feels personally attacked or not feeling heard or maybe her emotions are feeling hurt that that doesn't mean that she should disengage that it's actually part of the process and I want to read specifically what Glennon Doyle says about that I thought that if I explained to white women that the confusion shame and fear they would experience in their early days of racial sobriety were predictable parts of the process of unbecoming they would be more likely to remain in the anti-racism effort. Also, they'd be better equipped to confront their racism privately instead of mistakenly believing that that their feelings should be shared publicly. This felt important because Black leaders were telling me that the ignorance and emotionality of well-intentioned white women was a major stumbling block towards justice. I knew what they meant. I'd seen it happen again and again. If white women don't learn that our experiences in early racial sobriety are predictable, we think our reactions are unique. So we enter race conversations far too early and we lead with our feelings and confusion and opinions. When we do this, we are centering ourselves. So we inevitably get put back where we belong, which is far from the center. This makes us even more agitated. We are used to people showing gratitude for our presence. So being unappreciated hurts our feelings. So I've actually seen this happen in real time. I've seen how a white woman feels attacked, pretty much the process that Glennon lays out here and how it derails the purpose of the congregating or, you know, ultimately the effort that is trying to be put forth to make change. I've seen it happen. And I was, you know, it's one thing to experience it. And it's another thing to kind of see it broken down almost to a science. And I really appreciate that Glennon did this because, you know, she's a white woman. And I'm sure that a lot of white women read her book or are reading it right now. And I'm sure that a lot of there are a lot of white women who are interested in learning more about how white supremacy is kind of insidiously, but also overtly involved in every in many slash every aspect of our lives as Americans in the United States. So them reading this 
they will know their level of self-awareness because it always starts at self-awareness. Their level of self-awareness is going to be elevated to the point where they know that if they find themselves in a place where race is being discussed or, you know, something, a discussion within that context that is that has to do with society today, that what they're feeling is not one of a kind. And with that, with that knowledge that has been provided by Glennon in this book, they would be better able to control the emotions that they might feel in those moments when they're in those environments and those conversations. And having that self-awareness will allow for the purpose and the efforts that are being put forth to further progress instead of being stifled by people, women, white women who might feel attacked and then the focus is shifted and then the work that's attempting to be done is stifled. So I read this part of the book and I was like, I appreciate this. I appreciate that she was honest about this. I appreciate that she shared her experience so far. And um, I'm not quite sure how how things are looking presently on her journey. But wherever she was in her life at this point, for her to be able to share it like this and break it down to such detail, knowing who ultimately her core audience is, I think really helps with the overall effort, if you ask me, because a collective consciousness within a group of people has been elevated and they can't say that they don't know anymore. So if they find that they are in a space where their emotions can kind of detract from what is ultimately being done, they'll think twice. So yeah, the topic of the the title of the chapter is called Racists. And um, it was probably one of my favorite chapters in the book. So moving on, I wanted to talk about another chapter in the book called Deliveries. And she deals with a lot in that in this chapter. She talks about how ultimately a lot of feelings that we have, a lot of triggers, beliefs, feelings that we have are are developed from childhood. And when we come up on an experience or person or a place that kind of rubs us the wrong way or or is an affront to what we believe to be true then, you know, that is a cause for reflection. That is a point at which you question, is this real for me? Is this true for me? Or is this a belief or an ideology that I need to reassess? So she says on page 264, often our beliefs are programmed into us without our knowledge by our culture, community, religion, and family. Even though we don't choose these subconscious programs, they run our lives. They control our decisions, perspectives, feelings, and interactions. So they determine our destiny. What we believe, we become. There is nothing more important than unearthing what we really believe to be true about ourselves and our world. And nothing unearths what we really believe faster than examining what pisses us off. 
So I wanted to talk particularly about where she discusses her wife's attitude towards kind of like productivity versus rest. Her, Glennon, almost feels like she always has to be up and doing. She has to have things going on. She has to always be productive. But her wife has a different philosophy. She has a different approach to things. And when she would see her wife not doing anything, maybe resting or relaxing, it would almost be an affront to her belief of productivity being a gauge of self-worth. So she had to reevaluate that because it got to the point where it was making things a little uncomfortable and she would find that her her partner to kind of appease her would kind of create the illusion of busyness and productivity when she was around her, you know, which ultimately means that she's not comfortable to be herself when she is around her and this is, you know, kind of what's going on. So she had to break that down. And um, she says this on page 267. I looked hard at the root belief about worthiness that my anger at Abby had delivered to me. I thought, no, I don't want to keep this one. It was inherited by me, not created by me. I have outgrown it. It is no longer my truest, most beautiful belief about worthiness. I know better than this belief. It's harsh and it's hurting me in my marriage. I don't want to pass this one down to my kids, but I don't want to return it either. I want to exchange it for this amended one. And when she when she's talking about this exchange, she's talking about this first belief that resting is laziness and laziness is disrespect and worthiness and goodness is earned with hustle. This is the belief from childhood that she's attempting to exchange. And now this is the new belief that she wants to adopt. Hard work is important, so are play and non-productivity. My worth is tied not to my productivity, but to my existence. I am worthy of rest. So now, her wife has come into her life and shaken things up in ways that she could have never imagined. And one of those ways is her reevaluating her relationship to productivity, her relationship to rest, her relationship to what those words mean to her. And now because of that, she has realized that these are not beliefs she wants to continue to live by. And these are not beliefs that she wants to dictate her actions by, which her kids will ultimately see and internalize whether they know it or not. So because of this, she is now deciding to actively divorce herself from those childhood beliefs that have been ingrained in her and adopt this new belief that work, working hard is good. Working hard is um, important, like she said, but it's not your whole life. Just as you work hard, you need to rest. There's no, there's nothing negative about not being productive. You know, the body needs to rest. The body needs to recharge. The body needs points in its day or, you know, points in its life where it just does not need to be thinking so much about what is going on around it or what it needs to do because it's not sustainable. You will burn out. So you need to have periods of work and you need to have periods of rest. And that's ultimately how you're able to continue in the long run. So I wanted to mention this because this has been something I have had to kind of work through myself, feeling like I am 
feeling my best when I am productive, which I don't necessarily think is a bad thing. But when you actively put yourself down when you're not productive, I think that's where the problem comes in. And I used to do that sometimes. I'm going to be honest, sometimes it's still a struggle for me still, but I am better at it. I'm better at it now. If my body is telling me you need a break, I don't fight it anymore. I'm just like, okay, I'm done with my workday. There are certain things I could be doing for myself that are work-ish related, but I'm not going to do them. I'm not going to do them. They're going to be something that I do on another day. Um, For example, this podcast episode, I I had actually scheduled to record it on Friday, but Friday was a pretty long workday. I was exhausted. I was like, you know what? I had every good intention to (laughs) record this podcast today, but I'm going to have to find another time between the next day and the day it publishes to get it done and edit because I'm just tired. My body wants to rest and I listened and it's not the end of the world. I'm recording it now and I'm going to edit it and it's going to get posted well in time for the normal posting time. So I just wanted to talk about that because that's something that is actively a working theme in my life that I'm trying to get better at. And I have, but you know, a reminder is always good in the form of a book who has been written by some someone who is actively dealing with the same thing. And I also wanted to talk about the tap the chapter she wrote on racism because I haven't seen it broken down in that way by a white woman when it comes to their process on how to get from using my, I guess, analogy of the trans theoretical model for change, ultimately going from pre-contemplation to maintenance. So I really hope that that provided some insight in the book. I've done a two-parter on this book. So if it's not clear already, I do recommend it. It took me much longer to finish this book than I had planned, but I'm glad I got through it. It was very well reviewed and I see why. I'm a little ashamed to say I did initially judge the book by its cover, but I'm glad I got past that (laughs) because I learned a lot. There are a lot of aha moments in this book. I didn't even dig that deep. I just wanted to hit the high points that I found were important for me. So I hope you guys enjoyed that. And I'll close out this segment with just a couple of questions that I would ask Glennon if I had the opportunity to, you know, if there was like a, like a, I don't know, interview style or whatever. So ultimately, I would ask her if she has gained any new insights about herself since publishing this book, which according to the book was published in 2020. So three years, I don't know exactly when in 2020, but about two to three years. So I'm sure a lot has happened in her life since then. This book, I think, is a New York Times bestseller. I'm not quite sure, but I have literally seen it everywhere. So I would be surprised if it's not. And yeah, I'm sure her life has changed in ways that she hasn't, she did not anticipate. So I would wonder if there are any new insights that she's gained about herself since publishing the book. And then the second question kind of piggybacking off of that. Are there any truths in the book that were true for her at the time of writing that are not true for her anymore? Because I'm very big on the idea of you know, change and consistently evolving and consistently always learning lessons. And I closed out the last episode with that quote, 
about her not wanting to hold on to any belief in her life longer than she is meant to and always leaving room and openness for what is meant to come to her anew. So I would love to know if there's anything in the book that is not her reality anymore and is not true for her anymore. And I guess what has taken the place of that. So I hope you guys enjoyed this kind of stream of thoughts that I have shared about Untamed. And like I said, I highly recommend it. So I'll close out the episode with sharing the journal prompt of the day or journal prompt of the episode. And ultimately, it's who has been coming to your mind recently? Um, Who's been coming to your mind lately? I have talked on the podcast before about trying to be more intentional about reaching out to the people that I love and managing and managing and keeping friendships alive. Um, But this question can go far and wide. It doesn't have to be a friend. It could be a family member. It could be a coworker. It could be literally anybody. Like who has been coming to your mind lately? Have you been thinking or feeling like you should reach out to them? Have you want, have you been wanting to call them? Have you been wanting to check in on them? Consider this your sign to do it. You know, pick up the phone and call or send a voice note or send a text or send an email or what have you. Just reach out to that person. Tell them that you've been thinking about them. Tell them that you would want to reconnect or check in with them. Maybe even go as far as, you know, scheduling a time to, you know, talk live, you know, over the phone or FaceTime, you know, when both of you are free to have a more in-depth conversation because, You really don't know how gestures like that can just really make someone's day or week or what have you. I know that I always feel better when someone who's dear to me checks in on me or someone who I haven't heard from in a long time checks in on me. You know, people who you think you wouldn't cross their mind, you would be surprised. So challenging anyone out there who's listening if someone particular has been coming to your mind who you have been feeling you need to reach out to please do it I would venture to say there's a 90% chance that they would be so happy to hear from you and you never know what will come from it so with that thank you guys as always really appreciate you all If this episode or past episodes have positively impacted you, please rate, please review on your preferred platform. Please reach out to me via my social media handles in the description or email me at btbwpodcast at gmail.com. Also in the description, if you ever want me to answer a question on the podcast um, and you don't mind folks knowing or hearing the question or you want me to chime in on something going on in your life, please hit me up. I'd be happy to provide my thoughts. And yeah, love you guys as always. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you soon. Bye.